Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of the presidency. I'm John Dickerson of CBS This Morning. This is part two of Nixon Goes to China. Our Whistle Stop is July 10th, 1971. The Associated Press reports that the National Security Advisor of the United States, Henry Kissinger, has a stomach disorder. The report said it caused him to cancel a formal dinner in Pakistan. What we later learned was that he had been stricken with a rare form of stomach disorder you can only get when you are in Pakistan. Believe me, it's a local malady, very Pakistani-specific. It's known in the diplomatic trade as the not-being-in-Pakistan-at-all disease. It has a very specific set of symptoms. It manifests itself when the patient says he is in Pakistan lolling in his sickbed, but is really scuttling around China on a secret mission for the president to reestablish ties with the communist country. Kissinger had been in Pakistan, but then he slipped away in secret to meet with the Chinese premier Zhou Enlai to see whether there was any chance of a warming in relations with America and a possible visit by the American president. Kissinger told his Chinese counterpart during the meeting, In 1954, Secretary Dulles believed that it was America's mission to fight communism all around the world and for the U.S. to be the principal force, to engage itself in every struggle at every point of the world at any point of time. President Nixon operates, this is Kissinger, on a different philosophy. We do not deal with communism in the abstract, but with specific communist states on the basis of their specific actions towards us and not as an abstract crusade. We believe that if people want to defend themselves, they must do it on the basis of their own efforts and not on the basis of the efforts of a country 10,000 miles away. Oh, say like America. So when we offer to withdraw from Vietnam, it is not in order to devise some trick to re-enter in some other manner, but rather that we want to base our foreign policy on the realities of the present and not on the dreams of the past. I can assure the prime minister that any agreement that he makes with us will be kept in the letter and in the spirit. According to the New York Times, the National Security Advisor's cover was almost blown when he went on this secret trip to China. The White House reported that Kissinger was taking a day off during this trip to Pakistan, and a decoy motorcade was even set up with the wailing sirens to play up the bluff. But a British journalist saw Kissinger at the airport on his way to his secret trip to China, with whom the administration had only done the barest of public warmings. And this British journalist was told that Kissinger was headed to China. The reporter called his newspaper, but the story was killed because it sounded too absurd to be true. I mean, after all, the national security advisor for the severe anti-communist Richard Nixon going to China, a visit that had not received a U.S. dignitary since uh, the, the revolution in 1949. The Kissinger trip was plenty dramatic on its own. His schedule, Kissinger's schedule, was full of fictions in addition to the belly troubles in Pakistan and the false motorcade. But if the ruse was risky, it wasn't reckless. Nixon had a plan and a vision that that Kissinger was implementing, and it was a long-term vision of his. But if this warming was going to happen with China, then the two men had to entirely redesign the way the White House worked. As we noted in the last episode, Nixon had been thinking about China since his 1967 article, Asia After Vietnam. So for so he was ready to start playing footsie with China the minute he wriggled his foot into the presidential boot. In his inauguration, the new president sent the first signal. We seek an open world. 
a world in which no people, great or small, will live in angry isolation. The question then at the top of the Nixon administration was, how was he going to send the signal? Who was going to execute this and carry it out for him? The fact that Kissinger went on that secret mission for Nixon, of course, gives us our answer. But it but it's worth lingering for a moment here on Kissinger's role with Nixon. It tells us something important about the foreign policy structure in the Nixon years. In that period, William Rogers, uh, who was the Secretary of State, was not the key player in foreign policy. But you'll remember that in the brief little riff where Kissinger was talking to Zhao Enlai about John Foster Dulles, Dulles was the Secretary of State under Eisenhower. He played a key role in Eisenhower's foreign policy. The Secretary of State was the chief diplomat. But in Nixon's orbit, Kissinger, not the Secretary of State, William Rogers, was the point person. And this is important to understand. Nixon put our finger on an important part of how this China process could be worked out in secret in an administration. And it also says something about an important shift in the way White Houses are designed. Because power has been consolidated in the national security apparatus ever since, with the, with the Secretary of State being marginalized mostly in most White Houses, and that tells us something about the consolidation of presidential control, which puts more on the presidential plate, gives him more power. First, about Kissinger. He's a strong supporter of Nelson Rockefeller, who was Nixon's rival, so it was a big surprise. It's also a surprise that he was picked to, to work for Nixon, not just for that ideological reason. Rockefeller was more liberal. Nixon was the conservative anti-communist firebrand but it was a it was a bit of a uh, a surprise because kissinger was not a practitioner of foreign policy he was not a diplomat he was a professor this was encapsulated by the anecdote i don't think it's apocryphal the real anecdote when eisenhower heard that kissinger had picked had been picked he said but kissinger's a professor you ask professors to study things you never put them in charge of anything but kissinger and nixon had the same view about where national security decision making should be focused they both wanted it to be focused in the white house Ki- kissinger to affect that change proposed that the existing national security system be reformed now that of course appealed to nixon because they had this same view about where national security should be cooked up but also because he thought the state department was filled with what people would today call the deep state the administrative staff the existing bureaucrats that nixon thought wanted to thwart him Nixon wanted to centralize decision-making in the White House and wanted Kissinger, as his national security advisor, to formulate and execute, not simply coordinate foreign policy. The previous structure of the National Security Council was that it would coordinate the lines of of information and and action between state defense and the White House. Nixon had a more active role in mind for his national security advisor. This is informed by Chris Tuda's book, A Cold War Turning Point, Nixon in China, 1969 to 1972. William Rogers allowed himself at the State Department to be uh, hornswoggled, outmaneuvered, and otherwise hoodwinked by Kissinger in the early days of the presidency while Kissinger was rewiring the National Security Council. And though William Rogers came to resent it, he never really recovered. He complained to Nixon uh, and complained to the president's aides that the president didn't trust him and that Kissinger didn't treat him with respect. It would be goddamn easy to run this office, Nixon said after one conversation with Rogers, if you didn't have to deal with people. That account comes from Margaret uh, McMillan, Nixon, and Mao, the week that changed the world. You'll remember on that notion of Nixon not wanting to deal with people from the Haldeman um, episode of Whistle Stop, where Haldeman was constantly trying to get the president to meet with human beings, people, particularly members of his staff, uh, and that Nixon was reluctant to do it. So this here we have uh, the president expressing that with respect to um, 
to his conversation with Rogers. Here's how the Miller Center uh, concludes their assessment of the relationship of an, and, and the discussion of national security in the Nixon administration. Nixon took office intending to secure control over foreign policy in the White House. He kept Secretary of State William Rogers and Secretary of Defense Melvin Laird out of the loop on key matters of foreign policy. The instrument of his control over what he called the bureaucracy was his assistant for national security affairs, Henry Kissinger. So closely did the two work together that they are sometimes referred to as Nixinger. Together, they use the National Security Council staff to concentrate power in the White House, that is to say, within themselves. So, warming relations with China was one thing, but according to Margaret McMillan in her book Nixon and Mao, when Kissinger first heard that Nixon had a plan to go visit Mao in China, Kissinger thought he was nuts. But Nixon liked the clandestine nature of the plan. He also liked that it went around William Rogers. Uh, And by the way, key allies weren't informed either. So Nixon directed Kissinger to to begin sending signals. He wrote, uh, Nixon did a memo to Kissinger on February 1st, 1969, in which he said the following. I think we should give every encouragement to the attitude that this administration is exploring possibilities of rapprochement with the Chinese. This, of of course, should be done privately and should, under no circumstances, get into the public prints from this direction. Former National Security Council official uh, Winston Lord explained how they got this word over to China. The only way to get in touch with the Chinese was through third parties. There were various channels that Nixon and Kissinger tried to use to get word to the Chinese. In a general sense, they were looking for a new beginning. One involved using former French President Charles de Gaulle and the French. Another was Romania. And we finally, of course, settled on Pakistan. Pakistan had the advantage of being a friend to both sides. There was no danger of Russian involvement, as we might have had if we had used Romania. Romania under the Russian sphere of influence. The first Chinese response to these overtures, and remember, they're secret overtures except for that one line in the president's inaugural address, was on April 7th when the U.S. table tennis team participating in a championship in Japan was invited to China for an all-expenses-paid boondoggle. And here's a tidy account from History.com. During the 1971 World Table Tennis Championship in Japan, 19-year-old U.S. player Glenn Cowan hopped on a shuttle bus carrying the red-shirted Chinese national team. Most of the Chinese eyed the shaggy-haired American with suspicion. But Zhang Zudong... The team's greatest player stepped forward to shake Cowan's hand and speak to him through an interpreter. He even presented the teenager with a gift, a silkscreen picture of China's Hongshan Mountains. Cohen, a self-described hippie, returned the gesture by the following day by giving Zhuang a t-shirt emblazoned with a peace symbol and the Beatles' lyric, Let It Be. Photographers caught the incident on film and the unexpected goodwill between the U.S. and the Chinese team soon became the talk of the tournament. Zhuang and the rest of the Chinese players had been given strict orders not to talk to any Americans. But upon learning of the gift exchange, Chairman Mao took it as a political opportunity. Zhang Zedong is not just a good table tennis player, Mao observed. He's a good diplomat as well. So a few days later, as the U.S. team was preparing to leave Japan, Mao shocked the world by inviting them to an all-expense-paid trip to China. And after checking with the embassy, the American player said, Sweet! I was as surprised as I was pleased, President Nixon later wrote in his memoirs. I had never expected that the China Initiative would come to fruition in the form of a ping-pong team. The China Initiative being his long-planned attempt to warm uh, relations with China. So the Chinese let the Americans in. Nixon and Kissinger see an opening. 
Nixon was primed to see an opening and he was engaged in this China initiative because he wanted to be seen as a great man on the international stage. He had relished his famous kitchen table debate with Soviet leader Khrushchev when he was when uh, Nixon was vice president to Eisenhower. Here's how uh, Walter Isaacson put Nixon's worldview in his book uh, that Isaacson wrote on Kissinger. For Nixon, travel was one of the most enjoyable perquisites of the presidency. It offered him a respite from the unpleasant tasks of sorting out disputes and enforcing unpleasant decisions. And it provided the pomp and protocol that can reassure even the most insecure leader that he deserves the honors that bathe him. During his 2026-day presidency, Nixon would rack up 147,686 miles of international travel, a pace easily surpassing any other presidents and probably any other leaders in history. I've always thought this country could run itself domestically without a president, Nixon told the journalist Theodore White in an interview. All you need is a competent cabinet to run the country at home. You need a president for foreign policy. No secretary of state is really important. The president makes foreign policy. After Nixon announced the visit to China, which uh, had been preceded by this ping pong diplomacy, he started to get grief from the... uh, members of his own party, the conservatives in his own party. And a few days before the trip, which took place in 1972, in February of 1972, Nixon met with Senator James Buckley, a New York conservative, who had just come back uh, from a trip through East Asia. Before they met, when Nixon read in his news summary that Buckley, who had been, who was a strong supporter of Chiang Kai-shek and Taiwan, and the Chinese nationalists wanted to see him, he scribbled on the paper, no, we can't have the nuts kick us and then use us. Nuts, the nuts being the nuts in his own party, the conservatives. But in the end, Nixon did meet with him. Buckley, whose brother William F. Buckley, was organizing conservatives to suspend su- support for Nixon because of the China trip. Uh, Buckley came in with a long memorandum of concerns. And the major fear was that the U.S. would capitulate in the negotiations, give away too much, and uh, risk U.S. support for Taiwan. But mostly, Nixon was playing the politics pretty well. I should note, while the president may have been getting grief from the right, Tom Wicker, writing in the New York Times, points out, which was obvious at the time, this is 1972, so it's an election year. And here's how Wicker sees the politics of the moment. Mr. Nixon, whatever else may be accomplished in China, is giving his Democratic and Republican rivals a lesson in the hard fact that if you're going to run for president, it helps to be president. No other campaign headquarters is so powerful as the White House, and no other political apparatus does for a candidate what the powers of the presidency can do. In advance of the trip, Nixon had dinner with the writer Andre Malraux, who had visited Peking in 1965 and talked with Mao Zedong. And this is what Malraux said. You are about to attempt one of the most important things in our century, Malraux told the president. And this is according to Richard Reeves' book on Nixon. I think of the 16th century explorers who set out for a specific objective, but often arrived at a totally different discovery. You will be dealing with a colossus, but a colossus facing death. Mao's prime was 50 years ago. You will meet a man who has had a fantastic destiny and who believes that he is acting out the last act of his lifetime. You may think he is talking to you, but he will be, in truth, addressing death. This is what it's like when you dine with French writers. It is worth the trip, said Melrose. You have the destiny of the world in your hands. After dinner, Nixon, pretty heady, they sat for a time by the fire in the, in the family room upstairs at the White House. Relations over the next 25 years between the U.S. and Japan and the U.S. and China will determine the fate of the Pacific, Nixon said to Melrose. Our withdrawal might create a vacuum that would be filled by another power, Japan or the Soviet Union. 
The president said that he had read that Abraham Lincoln on the night before his assassination had told cabinet members that he had a dream of a voyage on strange seas and had seen the shore but could not identify anything on it. He described the craft upon which he was sailing as bound for an uncertain voyage beyond treacherous shoals, Nixon continued. Perhaps I too, said Nixon, and embarked on a strange voyage. But my purpose is to try to manipulate the boat, avoid the reefs, and arrive at my destination, which is a better understanding of China. No one will know if you succeed for at least 50 years, Mr. President, Malro said. The Chinese are very patient. Nixon was thrilled by the evening of talk of greatness and the ability to compare himself to Lincoln. As he walked Malro to his car, Malro turned to the president and said, I am not de Gaulle, but I know what de Gaulle would say if he were here, de Gaulle being the French leader. He would say, all men who understand what you are embarking upon salute you. On February 17th, the White House lawn was stuffed with onlookers. Democrats and Republicans there to wish the president well and send him off for his trip. President Nixon walked across the brown winter grass on his way to the helicopter with his wife, Pat, by his side. He stopped to make a few remarks. If we can make progress toward that goal on this trip, the world will be a much safer world. And the chance, particularly for all of those young children over there, to grow up in a world of peace will be infinitely greater. I would simply say in conclusion that if there was a postscript that I hope might be written with regard to this trip, it would be the words on the plaque which was left on the moon by our first astronauts when they landed there. We came in peace for all mankind. Once in the plane, the president hit the books. I know of no presidential trip that was as carefully planned, nor any president who ever prepared so himself so conscientiously. That's Nixon. That's Kissinger writing about Nixon's trip. Marshall Green, who was the U.S. ambassador to Jakarta, called Nixon the best informed on foreign affairs of all the luminaries who visited Jakarta during my four years there. Nixon was studying that four-foot-tall uh, set of briefing papers. Remember, tall as a mailbox. In a memo written on February 5th, shortly before the trip, Kissinger is said about Kissinger said about the Chinese, these people are both fanatic and pragmatic. They are tough ideologues who totally disagree with us on where the world is going or should be going. At the same time, they are hard realists who calculate they need us because of a threatening Soviet Union, a resurgent Japan, and a potentially independent Taiwan. When one refers to the Chinese, one is in effect discussing Mao and Zhou. They have been surmounting towering internal and external obstacles for some 50 years. They take a long view. They see history on their side. They will be seeking an answer to their decisive question. Does this American leader know where he is going? Indeed, Zhao told me the Chinese literally turned on the Russians after Khrushchev stopped off in Peking. His performance at the time convinced the Chinese that he was a bully who did not know where he was headed over the long term. What they need to be clear about is whether you know your own objectives, understand theirs, and are serious about what both. So this trip, as Kissinger was briefing Nixon on the plane, was about showing the Chinese that we mean business as Americans, and if so, they are willing to deal with us as realists. Kissinger presented the 74-year-old Zhou and Lai, the premier, as the tactician, the administrator, the negotiator, the master of details, and thrust and parry. He is clearly running China. 
Kissinger had and not at the time met Mao, but reported that others saw Mao as the philosopher, the poet, the grand strategist, the inspirer, the romantic. Nixon memorized all of it, hundreds of pages of talking points. And after talking to Kissinger for hours on the 18th, they were in the plane, Nixon made these notes on his yellow pad. What they want, build up world credentials, Taiwan, get U.S. out of Asia. What we want, Indochina, communism to restrain Chinese expansion in Asia. Three, in future, reduce threat of confrontation by China superpower. What we both want, one, reduce danger of confrontation and conflict. Two, more stable Asia. Three, a restraint on USSR. Richard Reeves in President Nixon alone in the White House points out that Nixon disagreed with one of Kissinger's suggestions. In his notes, Nixon wrote about a piece of advice from Kissinger. We can agree to more than we say, suggested Kissinger. Nixon disagreed, writing one, too dangerous, two, sounds tricky. So this is interesting, of course. Tricky Dick, the the um, nickname that Nixon got for the way he ran his political campaigns, is here not agreeing with Kissinger's um assessment of how they could promise more in private than what they were going to say publicly. The takeoff of the plane had been televised on all the national networks, and the press corps that traveled with President Nixon had been selected by the White House from 2,000 applicants, and priority had been given to the television people. During one of Kissinger and Zhao's meetings in July of 1971, when this was all being cooked up and Kissinger was sneaking away from Pakistan, Zhao said that only 10 members of the American press could attend. Kissinger said, when I asked our press secretary what the absolute minimum was, that was necessary for such a trip, he proposed 250 people. Zhao said, you mean Mr. Ziegler? Which was the press secretary. Kissinger said, yes. That's because that number, Kissinger was explaining, was because there had been 2,000 applications. After a week of acrimonious debate, Ziegler had now reduced the figure to 150 and is not talking to me anymore, to which Zhao responded, that's also a great disaster. I don't know whether it's a great disaster that the number had gone to 150 from Zhao's request of of 10 or that Ziegler wasn't talking to Kissinger. Anyway, back on the plane, flying through the air while the president is being briefed by his uh, national security team, Kissinger mainly, um, they go to Honolulu where they would stay for two nights. And then they went to Guam, where they would stay for a night. And the, and the route and the timing had all been laid out by the White House physicians to minimize presidential jet lag. According to Margaret McMillan, they then left on a short flight to Shanghai for the next day. And in Shanghai, after a brief welcome and a rapid breakfast, according to Margaret McMillan, Chinese pilots then came on board. This had been the subject of intense negotiations. And the Chinese pilots helped pilot the plane on its final leg to Peking. And that is where we will end this chapter of our story. Tune in next week for the conclusion of Nixon Goes to China. That's it for this edition of Whistle Stop, Nixon Goes to China, Volume 2. We'd love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on the iTunes store. It helps us spread the word. Our email, to which you can also send comments, is whistlestopatslate.com. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. The managing producer of Slate Podcast is June Thomas. The executive producer is Steve Lichtai. Our Whistlestop Cracker Jack researcher Brian is Brian Rosenwald, one of the editors-in-chief of Made by History, a Washington Post history section. And thanks to Elizabeth Hinson once again for her help sorting, sifting, and crunching through our mountain of research, finding fun and exciting anecdotes, which some of which we've saved for you in the third and final installment of this three-part Nixon Goes to China uh, cyclotron. 
And thanks also to Dustin Gervais and everybody over at CBS Radio for making things work so that we can record this podcast, which is known as Whistle Stop. Thanks for listening, everybody. I'm John Dickerson. Thank you.